You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Testing, testing, there we go. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see everybody out this morning. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. My name is Pastor Jeff Kelly. I am a pastor for assimilation, which simply means I um, help new people at Grace uh, find their way through membership and beyond into serving. And so I've been privileged to be uh, a part of that for the past seven months. Also, I am the pastor for student ministry, uh, which means I get to work with uh, your kids, uh, ages 6th six, uh, grade through 12th grade, and have a great uh, time doing that. We have, uh, what a joy it is to be able to serve the Lord in that capacity. Um, I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking when, you know, youth pastor, supposed to be somebody who's young, who's super good looking, who's cool. It's, <laughs> it's obvious. Obviously, elders went in a different direction when they hired me. But, uh, of course, we know that, we know that uh, the elders said that uh, they already had one on staff like that, so they didn't need another one. So I'll let Pastor Brad and Ricky and David fight it out for who that is. But I want to mention this before I jump into the text this morning. Um, we do have a benevolence offering at the end of the service. We do that to um, help those in need. So... Uh, and we have many in the membership who, from time to time, have needs, and we want to be, as a church, as much a help to you as possible, and so we bear each other's burdens in that way. So, um, if you would, just bear in mind that we will be taking that offering and uh, be prepared for that. My title this morning is God's Heart for a Drifting Soul. I'm going to have you stand, and we're going to read our text first. This morning, I'm going to take you to Malachi chapter 3, we're going to go to verse 16, and then we're going to go to the end of the book. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses. The statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. 
Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Word of God to the people of God. You may be seated. Growing up in upstate New York, we were just four hours from the coast of Maine where we would vacation most summers. And one distinguishing mark about Maine, if you've ever been there, is that they do actually have hot, humid summer days. There's at least two of them in the summertime. But equally, there are uh, many days where the water is just absolutely cold, too cold to go swimming in. So when that happened, we didn't swim. But when we did go in the ocean, my parents would always say the same thing to us as little kids. They would say, make sure you keep your eye on us. I realized quickly why they said that. And maybe you've had the same experience. When you turn and you look at the horizon or you're distracted by the waves or those people swimming around you, over time, the beating down of the waves pushes you further down shore. It causes you to drift from your starting point. A time this first happened, I was six or seven years old. I was swimming in the ocean. A big wave hit me. I went under. It's one of those waves where you just take in a gulp of salt water. Your, your throat begins to burn. I came up. I was gasping for breath, scared. And so I turned around to see where my parents were. But notice my parents weren't there. Actually, what had, what had happened is I drifted down shore without realizing so I immediately and frantically started looking for my parents. It took a few moments as I surveyed the shore, but I found them some distance down the beach, exactly where I had left them. I realized it wasn't my parents that had moved from me, but me from them. And the distance left me anxious and scared. In our text this morning, God is addressing a drifting people who are far off from their parents' spiritually. And God's message to them is simply, I will return you to your parents. Like children separated from their parents on the sandy shore, so Israel was separated from the faith of their fathers. Fathers like Jacob or Levi, Moses, and Elijah, who are all mentioned in this book. Men who feared God. In the center of this book, we find an indictment and a call to return. In chapter 3, verse 7, it says this. This is Malachi writing. He says, and this is from the Lord. For the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. As is often the case, everything that begins well doesn't end well. God's promise to bring Israel back out of Babylonian captivity finally came. It's in this post-exilic setting, at the end of the New Testament, in which Malachi addresses himself. At this point in history, the people of Israel had seen the work of Nehemiah, rebuild the wall, kind of reestablish the the walls of the temple, and Ezra comes in, the great priest, and he sets up worship. 
And as a result, Israel now found themselves in a position of rest. But as is often the case, rest coupled with prosperity is a deadly combination. Now that Jerusalem had returned to a substantial degree of normalcy, the inevitable lethargy, laxity, leniency in spiritual matters had developed. A measure of comforting security under the Persian uh, protection encouraged the people of Judah to let their hands fall on the task of building their, their land in the name of God. It was this drifting state of affairs in which we find the setting of Malachi this morning. God's clarion call to Israel is simply this. Return. Return. Come back. You've drifted down shore far enough. Return to your fathers where there is life and peace. And this is God's call to all of us today and to everyone. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. What a promise that is. This morning's message is simply a call to all who have drifted. You're on a spiritual autopilot, maybe. Your soul is going through the motions, but your spirit is far from God. As the hymn writer once wrote, prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. This is the state of affairs for some of us from time to time. Find ourselves drifting further and further from truth, from God. And these are the things that Malachi points out to Israel. And so this is God's simple message to us today. I want you to see that there are many marks of a drifting soul, but I want to point out three this morning in the text. First, I want you to consider... That the first mark of spiritual drift is that you simply begin to question God. You simply begin to question God. The second mark of spiritual drift is that you allow things in your life you know are wrong. And the third mark of spiritual drift is that you begin to see God in His wrath as opposed to His grace. These are the things that I want to focus in on this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll look at the first point. Father, thank you for being a God of grace, being a God of mercy, God of love. It's in this light, Lord, in which we read your text this morning. Father, we are all benefactors of your grace and how you condescended to us in the life of Christ. And now, Lord, we as a people, Father, are gathered this morning just full of joy and full of awe of what you've done. But, Lord, there are times when we stray. I pray that you would use this text, Lord, to encourage us to return. In Christ's name, amen. The first mark of spiritual drift is that you begin to question God. You begin to question 
God. When playing in the ocean, a little drift is expected, and frankly, it's okay. It's not too dangerous. But the longer we take our eyes off of our starting point or our parents, we move further down shore. Likewise, we might think a little spiritual drift is expected and even acceptable. So I want us to consider what does a little spiritual drift look like? What does it begin as? Let me suggest to you this morning that spiritual drift begins by simply questioning God. Does God really love me? Does God really care about me? Now, these are questions you may have asked yourself or asked to God in the past. But this is exactly the way the book of Malachi begins. Look at Malachi chapter 1. This is the oracle of the word of God to Israel by Malachi. In verse 2 it says, I have loved you. This is God speaking to Israel. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Nine times in this book, Israel is said to question God. Four times in chapter 1, two times in chapter 2, three times in chapter 3. This becomes the premise for God's indictment on Israel. Those questions. Questioning God. It starts in chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, how have you loved it's a common question we may ask when something seemingly goes wrong in our lives. All right, we lose a job. Get passed over for a job promotion. Right, your marriage has soured. You feel trapped. Maybe it ends in divorce. Maybe your children go astray. Maybe you found out you owe a great sum of money to the IRS or Medical bills just pile up and there seems to be no way out. Maybe a homeschool mom is just frustrated with homeschooling and, and feels trapped in that setting. Maybe college kids feel pressured to pursue their parents' dreams for their lives instead of their own. Whatever the case, something arises that doesn't measure up to what you have envisioned for your life. And you can find yourself asking that question. Does God love me? The question of God's love was the beginning of spiritual drift. Notice, they didn't back away from the sacrificial system. They didn't just abandon God. That's not the way this begins. They just became kind of half-hearted. Look at chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Notice this, by offering polluted bread upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that to the Lord's table that you may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that now to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. What was supposed to be a spotless lamb offered to a perfect God had now become diseased and rotten meat. This was their view of God. This is what he deserved. Look down at verse 
12. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what is taken, taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept this from your hands, says the Lord. This was the state of Israel. It wasn't that they abandoned their God. It was that they just became tired. And they weren't going to follow God as he commanded in the Old Testament. The priests were partial in the law. Look at Malachi chapter 2 and verse 7 and 8. He's speaking to the priests and he says this. He says, for the lips of a priest shall guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of, of hosts. This is what they've done. They've caused many to stumble by their instruction. No longer were they trusted God followers. They were the exact opposite. So how did this downward spiral or spiritual drift begin? Well, it all began in chapter 1, verse 2, where they began to question God's love. Does God love us? And why do they question God's love? Well, it's not immediately apparent why they question God's love. In other words, we're looking for something that would kind of trigger that, right? What circumstance in Israel happened that would cause... God brought them back from out of, out of bondage. They're living in prosperity. So why now would they question God's love? Well, I think we get a clue. Chapter 3, verses 13 and 15, 13 through 15. Where God says this, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. You see what's happening here? Israel became concerned about what was happening with everybody else. Instead of taking stock of what God had done for them, they were now looking at it saying, where is this God that said he was going to protect us? Why is he protecting them, the evildoers? In chapter 2, verse 17, they asked the question, where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? Israel was asking the same question question Job asked centuries before, why do the evil prosper and the righteous suffer? You see, when you take your eyes off God and the blessings he's poured on you, you begin to look at other people's lives and compare. And then you judge and you come up short. This is easy to do. Some of you have done it on Facebook before where you see people's travel adventures, right, dining experiences, you see their social events, you see their children's successes, and it's kind of an aggregate of all these wonderful things that are happening in people's lives, but yours. 
Why are my children like that? Have you ever caught yourself saying, they're going to Disney World again? <laughs> they're on another missions trip? Are you kidding me? Right, we've all done it. We sigh, we shut the computer. And then we stare at the pile of dirty dishes in the sink that need to be washed, toys <laughs> scattered about the room that need to be picked up, bills stacked on the table. And we forget how wonderful God really is. Does God really love me? You see, when we think of spiritual drift, we often think of abandoning our faith, but in reality, it's not like that at all. It's a subtle shift to the left or to the right of just questioning God's goodness. Michael Horton, in his book, Christless Christianity, writing about a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, makes this statement. He says, there need not be explicit abandonment to any key Christian teaching. Just a set of subtle distortions and not so subtle distractions. Even good things cause us to look away from Christ and to take the gospel for granted as something we needed for conversion, but which now can be safely assumed and put in the background. Center stage, however, is something or someone else. You see, this is the first mark of spiritual drift. You simply begin to question God's goodness. Let me encourage you this way. If you found yourself kind of in that position, let me just encourage you that there's a good way back from that drift. That is, just remember the works of God. Take out a pen and a piece of paper and just start to catalog all the good things that God has done for you. Don't worry about anybody else. God has done so many good things for us. And he wants you to remember them. Why do you think he said to the fathers of Israel, hey, set up that stack of stones over there so that the time will come when your children will ask, hey, what, what are those stones for? And you can remind them that this is the time that I delivered you. Oh, that we had more memorials. So that we can remember the things of God. Quickly, the second mark of spiritual drift is when you allow things in your life you know are wrong. In 2011, I was blessed to travel with a group of men to the Dominican Republic to help build a church, building for a small church in La Romana. We worked hard all week. We mixed concrete. We hauled block up ladders. We cut rebar. It was sweaty, hard, but wonderful work, right? At the end of the week, we were exhausted, and they always reserved the last day of the week to take the uh, people that were helping to build uh, to a resort. And we went to a place called Punta Cana. Some of you may have been there. And if you have, you know it's a tropical paradise. Two men on the trip who were with us building were Delta pilots, and they had traveled all over the world, and one of the things that they loved to do is wherever they went, they would snorkel. And so they talked me into going snorkeling with them. I'd never been. I felt safe with them, so it was a, a time of fun and leisure, and so it was a perfect day, sunny, 85 degrees. It was in the middle of January. It was perfect. We went out not far from the shore, but far enough to see some beautiful fish. And We did see some beautiful fish that day. But as time went on, a current began to develop around us. 
And before we knew it, we are caught in this riptide. I remember I was only a few feet from my friends and I could, I could clearly see the shore. But no matter how hard we tried to swim toward the shore, the current kept drifting us further and further out. I looked over at my friend who was supposed to be the expert snorkeler and he looked worried. Then I knew we were in trouble. Just moments before we were enjoying the views of coral fish, but now we were fighting for our lives. I know most of you are wondering, did I make it out alive? I'll, I'm going <laughs> to leave that to the end. You see, sin is like this. We get lured in by its seeming beauty, become distracted by, from our anchor point by our desires, the things that we want. Things that maybe we don't have. Then without realizing it, we get pulled into its current. And we start to drift even further out. And we start to allow things in our life that may not be sin. Remember what Hebrews says, right? To cast off every weight and sin. See, there are things that aren't sin that, that God just says aren't good for us. That weigh us down, that kind of drag us out. Those are the things that God says, hey, listen, just pay attention to that. See, what became spiritual laziness actually developed into them outright uh, sinning. Really, all of it was sin, but, but became even more influenced by the cultures around them because they were looking at the people saying, we want some of that. And so look at chapter 2 and verse 11. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. They were marrying women from other nations. Now, that didn't work well for Solomon. They would have known that. They also began to... And in conjunction with this, divorce was rampant. Look at verse 15 in chapter 2. Verse 15 says this. Did not he make them one with a portion of the spirit in the union? Talk about the marriage. And what was God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man... Who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord. The God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So they were marrying outside of Israel. They were just rampant. Divorce was going on for any reason at all. They began to do things that they knew were wrong. The people began to rob from God. Look at chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Hmm. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. This is the deplorable state of Israel. They began to drift by questioning God's love for them, and then they began to do things that they knew were wrong. Look at verse 5 in chapter 3. This 
indictment gets even worse. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. This is the state of Israel. Now they've gone from worshiping God to now practicing pagan rituals. Demonism. We saw this happen with Saul. So none of it's new. I will be a swift against, uh, a witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The second mark of spiritual drift found in our text this morning is that you begin to allow things in your life that you know are wrong. Israel knew better than this because Moses had already spelled it out in Deuteronomy. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10, where he is saying, God's going to bring you into the land. Moses tells them, here in verse 10, he says, you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for all the good land that he's given you, but take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when you, your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Again, our tendency is to forget. This is why in Malachi chapter 4 in our text, in verse 4, God says, remember the law of my servant Moses. We just read it, right? Deuteronomy. Remember that law. It's important that we don't forget. Again, I suggest that we become more grateful for what God has done and become less of a complainer. This is Israel. They just complained against God. God says, remember the works that I've done for you. But notice this. The third mark of spiritual drift is that you begin to see God for His wrath and not His grace. We've already read in our text this morning, in chapter 4, verse 1, God's judgment here, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. This is a message of judgment intended to warn Israel, but also prophesy because he knew that many would reject him. But let me suggest to you, if you read the Old Testament and come away thinking God is an angry God, full of judgment and wrath, waiting to condemn people, that is because that's what you want to see. But it's against this 
dark backdrop of God's wrath in which we see the beautiful thing called God's grace. God says, I could wipe you out. I could cover you with shame, but... And so God delivers this message to Israel and he says, I want you to return to me, return to me, and I will return to you. God says to the priest in chapter 2, listen to me, take what I say and take it to heart. And then in verse 5 of chapter 4, this is why he says, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. You see, God's wrath is only the backdrop which gives light to his wonderful glory. Let me ask you a question. What woman would reject a diamond because of the black felt that it sits in front? Would you? Yet many people reject God's grace because of his wrath. I was reading an article this week about Aaron Rodgers quarterback for the Green Bay Packers. Grew up in a Christian home, apparently, going to a church, at least, that preached the Bible. In a podcast this week, he said um, that he could not believe in the God of the Bible. Quote, I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. He goes on, what type of loving, sensitive, omnipresent being wants to condemn his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all this. Aaron, he doesn't want to. That's the point. He doesn't want to, right? This is why at your football games, Aaron, John 3.16 is prominently displayed at many of those games. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a message of hope. But some people get caught up in just staring at the felt, and they don't value the diamond. You see, the third mark of spiritual drift is that you begin to see God for his wrath, not his grace. God's grace is more glorious when placed against the backdrop of his wrath. So God makes a plan. I will send Elijah who will prepare the way of the Lord. Why Elijah? Well, as you can see, the last verse mentions, verse 4 mentions Moses, and now it mentions Elijah. Those two people kind of sum up the entirety of the Old Testament. Um, this was a designation here in the New Testament, Christ even used this as a designation to kind of encapsulate the whole teaching of the Old Testament. When they came to him, they said, what are the greatest commandments? And Christ said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You see, both Moses and Elijah spoke of Christ. If you remember on the road to Emmaus, Christ began with Moses, expounding things about himself. So Malachi mentions Elijah coming again. Now the Jewish people today set a place when they celebrate Passover. There's a, there's a seat that they hold for Elijah in anticipation of his return. 
because they believe that Elijah is still yet to come. But we know the New Testament, and we know that this Elijah is John the Baptist. If you have your Bibles, and you can turn over to Luke chapter 1. I have the verses on the screen as well, but Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. An angel comes to Zechariah, this priest who is serving his duty in the synagogue there. But the angel kind of approaches him as Zechariah sat there praying for Israel's deliverance. In verse 13 it says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine nor strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now get this, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts and the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Matthew 11. I have these verses on the board, on the TV too. Matthew 11, verses 10 through 14. Speaking of John the Baptist, he says, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent taken by force for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. What is said of John is that he could turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers. How? By preparing the way of the Lord. Ultimately, he would point to the Savior, point to Jesus Christ. Now, in our text this morning, he said he would return the hearts of the children to their fathers and the fathers to their children. How would this happen? How would the children of Israel go back to the heart of Levi or Jacob or Moses or Elijah? How would that happen? It would happen through one person, Jesus Christ. Consider Isaiah 9, 6, for example. For unto us, unto us a son is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is called the Everlasting Father. Moses and Elijah are paramount. In fact, if you travel to the end of Matthew, you'll find Matthew's recording of the transfiguration of Christ and who was there with Christ, Moses and Elijah. And Christ 
was there as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said that. John 14, 6. Spiritual drift must require us to look to Jesus for that return. You see, John the Baptist came to the Jews, and the Jews did not receive him. I want to read one more passage. This was John saying this in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. He says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to be baptized, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit, keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Even every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Sounds a lot like the judgment passage in Malachi chapter 4. You see, when Israel rejected John, Jesus took the message to the streets of Jerusalem, began to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ through Peter, and many came back to their fathers. The origins of the local New Testament church begin in Israel, begin with the Jewish people. Sometimes we forget that. But most of Israel would fail to respond to the call of God's call for repentance, call to return. And so God says, I'm going to extend the borders of Israel and I'm going to include the Gentile nations. This is why in chapter 1, verse 11, chapter 1, verse 14 of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 12, chapter 3, verse 16, Malachi says, and among all the nations, my name will be glorified. This is God's promise this morning, is that God will raise up a people for his name, and which he has done, it's called the local church. This is why the church is the pillar and ground of the church, truth. The third mark of spiritual drift then this, in our text is that we start to see God's wrath rather than His grace. When you've drifted further and further down the shore, God doesn't look so gracious anymore. All you start to see is His chastening and His wrath. You say, I'm saved. Am I in danger of spiritual drift? It's a good question. I would say yes, but not unto condemnation, of course. We believe that when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, it wasn't done because of any good work that you have done. Therefore, there's no work you could do to undo that. It's as simple as that. So what is the call of God to you? Well, what's the danger, right? If you're drifting from God, if you found yourself questioning God or allowing things in your life that you know are wrong or sinful... Then think, do I feel like God's wrath's on me? You know, there are a lot of Christians who, from time to time, say, Am I really saved? Why do they ask that question? Because they've drifted. And now they're starting to look at God's wrath, not His grace. This is nothing new. Remember, 
those three points. First mark of spiritual drift is that you simply begin to question God. The second mark is that you drift by allowing things in your life that you know are wrong. And the third one is that you start to see God's wrath, not his grace. This happened in the Garden of Eden. Satan comes to Eve. She begins to question God. She begins to do things that she knows are wrong. She takes the fruit. She eats it. What's the next thing that happens? She experiences this under, uh, this overwhelming thought of God's wrath. And now summed up in that are the people of Israel who are now all guilty in the sin of Adam and Eve, right? So lastly, this morning, I want to point to four things that will kind of the four marks, if you will, of those who don't spiritually drift. Well, remember the works of the Lord. Remember the works of the Lord for you specifically and the people of God around you. Number two, treat those around you with love and pursue peace with one another, including your spouse, husbands. How are you treating your wives? Wives, how are you treating your husbands? Roommates, how are you treating your roommates? <laughs> Fathers, how are you treating your sons? Number three, trust him wholly with your life, which includes your finances. The Israelites were robbing from God by withholding sacrificial giving. This was a mark against them. And God says, listen, I love a cheerful giver. Give joyfully. Give sacrificially work of God. I will, I will far outdo your expectation and how I provide for you. It's not always material. We know that. But it's far greater than material things. And then lastly, I want you to sit at the feet of Jesus and savor His grace. Friends, God's call is not flashy. It's not a moment of great lights and a whiz-bang experience. It's just a simple call. If you found yourself drifting away from God, return. Return to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your text, for Your Word through the prophet Malachi. Thank You for John the Baptist. Thank You for Jesus Christ. What a joy it is, Father, to Lord, look into the perfect law of liberty. And Lord, be set free from the bondage of our own making. And Lord, to simply come back and confess, repent, and find safety and love through Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the wonderful preaching that goes on week after week after week through Pastor Brad and many others, Lord. What a privilege it is for these people, for all of us, Lord, to sit under the word of God. We, we pray that, Lord, this church would be a bastion of love, Lord, that people would see this place as just incredibly loving. And we think of that, Lord, in terms of the benevolence offering that we're about, about to take, Lord. What a joy it is to be able to give back to you. I pray that we would do that, Lord. And so bless us now as a people, in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. 
Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.